And uh, what a cool day when uh, Halloween slash Reformation Sunday lands on a Sunday. So we're going to be talking about Martin Luther. In the next two weeks, we'll talk about uh, Martin and Katie. And uh, I, I tried to tell Audra with the birth of their child, happy birthday to Caitlin. I said, you guys really need to come in your Martin Luther, Katie Luther costumes, but I couldn't convince them. Well, hey, uh, Carmen's here dressed as Patrick Mahomes, so we're good. <laughs> well, let me ask you a question. Hope you have your lesson notes. If you don't, they're over there. Um, have you ever found yourself plunged into total darkness? You have if you've ever been to Silver Dollar City and visit Marble Cave. I love going to caves. Don't go to them very often. In fact, I think that may, well, maybe when I was a kid. But go to Marvel Cave. They take you down there, and then at one point, they turn out all the lights. They just turn out all the lights. And it's, it's a wild experience, but it's not like, it doesn't elicit a lot of feelings, because why? You know that very soon, those lights are going to come back on, and there's going to be a guide to lead you out of the darkness. But listen, darkness, that absence of physical light, uh, the absence of light in general, brings with it fear, doubt, bondage, and a profound sense of hopelessness. If you've ever been in total darkness, it just happens when our power goes out. I mean, even more so when you think about spiritual darkness. Think about when before you came to Christ and the darkness that you lived in. The Bible describes that time where you're unable to overcome spiritual fear, spiritual doubt, spiritual bondage, spiritual hopelessness. You're unable to replace those things with faith and love and freedom and hope in God the Father and His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible calls that experience as sitting in darkness. Think about that. Sitting in darkness. Not standing, running around, because really, if you're in total blackness, what happens? You're paralyzed. You can't move. You're dwelling in darkness. Well, from A.D. 300 to 1500s, there was an increasing spiritual darkness in the church that enslaved generations in ignorance and unbelief. But then, in 1517, by God's gracious providence, a spark was lit that would shine the light of the gospel into that darkness of ignorance, fear, bondage, idolatry, and hopelessness. 504 years ago, on this very day, a spark was lit by God's gracious providence that would shine the light of the gospel into the spiritual darkness of the Middle Ages. And you say, why should we care about that? Because that darkness still exists today, and that gospel can shine into the light of that darkness to free people today. The gospel reformation brought about such a profound transformation in the hearts of people and the life of the church that eventually the surrounding and the and eventually the surrounding culture it not only enlightened people's hearts and not only changed the church but we're going to see that it changed the culture that the men who led this gospel reformation would now call it after darkness light after darkness light in a sense in our terminology they created a hashtag after darkness light. But these guys, uh, if you bring that up, Audrey, these guys would, uh, in that day, most people were illiterate. Most people, they, weren't, they didn't read. It was an image-oriented society. And in a lot of ways, it, it mirrors our society. We have more technology, and yet we're more image-oriented, and we have increasing illiteracy and people that can't read. And so the educated people in that day, priests, scholars, professors, they would all speak and write in Latin. And so their term was post-tenebras lux. But 
what that means in English is after darkness comes light. And it's just like a motto, a tweet, a hashtag. Well, today is Halloween, as you guys know, and I couldn't pass up the opportunity to teach a short series on the Reformation. So for the next uh, four weeks, we're going to trace back to that pivotal event that happened 504 years ago in Wittenberg, Germany, when an insignificant monk with a mallet by the name of Martin Luther sparked a flame that still burns brightly today. And I think it's great that we're following this from our World Outreach celebration. And the reason is, much of what you and I take for granted about world missions began to be recaptured at the Reformation. And it didn't all get recaptured there. It was an ongoing uh, Reformation, especially following the Reformers, that recaptured that. And even our Maconde uh, New Testament celebration two weeks ago, that is a direct result of the Reformation, which spawned a huge opening of the translation of the Bible into the common language of people. And so this morning, what I want to help us do is look at four reasons why we need to remember the Reformation. Already, you might be thinking, well, why? this is history, and that's a danger sign sometimes. And you may be thinking, well, what's the relevance of something from 504 years ago? Well, I'm going to give you four reasons why we should remember, and not only remember, but celebrate the Reformation, especially on this day, of uh, October 31st. So let's look at it. There's many reasons I could give you. These are four, okay? So let's look at them. First of all, God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things. God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things. If I would tell you one of the greatest benefits of church, of studying church history, of reading biographies of great men and women in the past is it reminds you that God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things. Now, what happened 504 years ago? Anyway, well, here it is. God used an insignificant monk with a mallet to spark a revolution. Martin Luther was a monk who hammered a list of 95 theses, which we could say 95 points of debate. And he hammered it on the church door, which in those days was like the bulletin board or a blog post, or it's like the Internet where everybody went to read things. And so he took his hammer and, or something, whatever, maybe he picked up a rock, we don't know. But uh, he hammered those up. And what happened from just simply doing that one insignificant event by an insignificant monk changed everything ever since then. Because on Wednesday, October 31st in 1517 was a Wednesday. And according to tradition, at two in the afternoon, probably speculation, a monk by the name of Martin Luther approached the church in the university town of Wittenberg, Germany, to nail his 95 theses to the church doors. And these 95 points of debate were focused on a certain practice of what we now know as the Roman Catholic Church. I'm going to refer to it as the Roman Catholic Church. Back, back then, it was simply the church, because the, the, the Catholic Church at that day ruled effectively all of Europe and influence people's lives from kings down to the poorest person. But I'll refer to it as the Roman Catholic Church. And, uh, and it, it, it was a certain practice that they did. It was the selling of indulgences. We'll talk more about that in the weeks to come. But that's what happened. What I want you to see, though, is on this day, 504 years ago, this insignificant monk, with each hammer blow of nailing his points of debate, unknowingly unleashed a revolution in the following areas. You can see him there in your notes. It resulted, the Reformation resulted in economic revolution. 
The development of free markets and commerce can be traced back to this time. It resulted in political revolution. Do you realize our modern-day nation-states were a result of the Reformation? Before the Reformation in the Middle Ages, uh, uh, knights and, and, and princes ruled large areas. It was a feudal system where the poor stayed poor and the rich stayed in power. And it just resulted in the modern nation states, Germany, France, England, these kind of things. Number three, it resulted in educational revolution. Widespread education and literacy flowed out of the Reformation. Uh, prior to this time, I mean, there were well-educated, uh, particularly men, there were well-educated people who wrote in Latin, spoke in Latin, read in Latin. They would read, also, read in Latin. But the average person was illiterate and didn't have the capability to read and write. And when that happens, you're enslaved to ignorance and fear and tradition and superstition. And it really came with the explosion of the printing press, but it's what you print on that printing press that matters. It's what you distribute, right? So there's, you know, we have an information explosion, and I'd say, what, 99.9% of what's out there is man's foolishness, right? But this unleashed not only education, but it unleashed the printing of the Bible in the common language. And fourthly, it resulted in radical cultural, cultural revolution. The Reformation caused a worldview change where people began to see all of life under the rule of God and therefore spiritual in God's eyes. The reformers and their doctrines brought about changes in politics, in the arts, in family life, and in work life. Many of these things that we take for granted today are a direct result of the, of the Reformation. And here's an example from work life. One time, Martin Luther was asked by an ordinary common shoemaker, said this, Dr. Luther, I am but a humble cobbler, but I am grateful for God's justifying work on my behalf. What should I do in light of Christ's great redemptive work? So here's a guy who is living in darkness, making shoes, comes, here's the light of the gospel through the Reformation. Now, what do I do? And here's what Luther said. Make a better shoe. Make a better shoe to the glory of God and for the good of others. That kind of view where all of life is lived for the glory of God, where it's not just the priests or the, the religious uh, special anointed who are exposed to God and to God's word and to God's glory. No, we can all live. And far too often, far too often, we do not value the ordinary and the mundane routines of life. We are constantly, constantly seeking that bigger and better opportunity. And yes, it's a grind. It's a grind at work. But when you see it, and you not whistle while you work, but you worship while you work and realizing I can make a better shoe to the glory of God. But the greatest revolution of all was spiritual in nature. It resulted in a spiritual revolution. And what do you call a spiritual revolution? You call that a reformation that we still benefit from today. One of the great church historians is Philip Schaff. He wrote an eight-volume history of the church. And here's what he said. The Reformation of the 16th century is, next to the introduction of Christianity, the greatest event in history. Think about what he's saying. He's saying, what are the top two greatest events in history? The coming of Christ and the birth of the church and Christianity, and then the Reformation. It marks the end of the Middle Ages and the beginning of modern times. Starting from religion, it gave directly or indirectly a mighty impulse to every forward movement 
and made Protestantism the chief propelling force in the history of modern civilization. That is indisputable, although people deny it, people debate it, debate it, and now that we live in a postmodern age of relativism, they're trying to rewrite this history and erase it. So before we go any farther, I want to define our terms. We're gonna, we've already thrown out Reformation, Reformers. What, what do these words mean? And, I, I, you know, this isn't the, the exciting part of the lesson, so, you know, stay awake. But definitions are important. There's more I could give you. These are just some to get us going. First of all, what does it mean to reform? Real simple. It means to cause a change for the better. To cause a change by correcting or removing what was wrong and replacing it with what is right. Now, as Christians, we know that is basically the definition of repentance. Of repent, repentance. To reform is to repent. To turn from what is wrong to what is right according to God's word. So, what's a, a, my simple definition? To reform calls for ongoing repentance of God's people. It calls for ongoing repentance. In other words, you go to the Bible, you find out what God says, you look at what's wrong in your life and, 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 and what's around you, and you seek to correct that. Therefore, how do you define the Reformation, Chris? Well, the Reformation is a massive turning point in church history. It was a pivotal turning point where God providentially began to bring people back to the Bible. They were, listen, as long as this book is closed, you're living in darkness. When this book opens, it's like taking a flashlight and shining it in your face, shining it on your life. And suddenly, what you, where you were blind, you can see. Suddenly, where you were lame, you can walk. Suddenly, where you were sick in your sin, you can be healed. And so the Reformation was really a back to the Bible movement of God. So when we talk about all this, you can get it. You can do it. What's the Reformation? A back to the Bible movement of God. Here's what one scholar put it. The point, well, um, what did I do? Here we go. The age of the Reformation bears a strong resemblance to the first century. Both are rich beyond any other period in great and good men and women. Important facts and permanent results. Both the first century and there in the 1500s, both contain the ripe fruits of preceding and the fruitful germs of succeeding ages. They are turning points in the history of mankind. They are felt in their effects to this day, and they will be felt to the end of time. This again is Philip Schaff, and he ends by saying this, In both centuries, we hear the creative voice of the Almighty calling light out of darkness. After darkness, light. Now, you say, what, how significant was this turning point of history? Well, let's look at it. A moment, it was a movement of God to lead to three things that played out in the next 300 years, and we still feel their effects. It resulted in open Bibles in the 1600s. Listen, when you start pointing people back to the Bible, what happened was a Bible translation movement where the Bible was translated no longer in the Latin that only the most educated understood, but now it was being translated in German by Luther, in, Fr- in French in France, in English in England. Here's William Tyndale in prison working on translating the Bible. Open Bibles. When you go back to the Bible and you begin to preach the gospel, it results in open Bibles. 1600, think about what was the most famous translation in the 1600s? 
Yeah, King James, 1611 King James. But it was also the Tyndale Bible. It was the Bishop's Bible. It was the Geneva Bible. It was just an explosion. But what happens when you open the Bible? When you open the Bible, it creates open hearts. So that in the 1700s, there was revival as the Bible was proclaimed. Hearts were opened and converted. And you had men like George Whitfield. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, you had John Wesley, and there was the Great Awakening that went from Europe and crossed the ocean to America, which who was just coming into their freedom and forever has shaped our nation. But open Bibles leads to open hearts to the 1800s. It led to open doors. The, the movement, the missionary movement, of Christianity exploded in the 1800s. And there's William Carey who went off to India. You had Judson, the first American missionary uh, from America going over to India and then landing in Burma. And so I I find this amazing. It's just this all is fruit of the Reformation. And so having a Bible in English, that's Reformation right now. Uh, thinking about revival and, 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 and passing out tracts in Sri Lanka. That's open hearts. And we just came off our world outreach celebration. So there you go. But also, the Reformation reminds us of this timeless truth, and it's this. The most powerful force in all of history is a common man or woman with a common Bible committed to an uncommon purpose. That is the lesson of church history beginning in the book of Acts and you trace it through. In fact, when I teach the book of Acts, when I teach church history, I teach about the great men and women because the most powerful force then and now is a common man with a common Bible committed to an uncommon purpose. And that uncommon purpose is advancing the Great Commission through the local churches, planting establishing and multiplying local church. Here is a page out of the uh, Gospel of John, the first Bible translated from Greek into English. Now, if you can take a, take a look at that, you see real quick why trans, uh, 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 English Bibles, all Bibles, need to be revised. How would you like to have that as your Bible, trying to read that? That's why we continually have to revise. Now, in our day, we're kind of getting carried away with that, but it does need to be done periodically. So, let me give you another, another definition, and that's Reformation theology. Reformation theology. I'm not talking about Reformed theology. I'm talking about Reformation. What kind of theology uh, spawn, or, uh, was birthed by the Reformation? It is summarized in what is called the five solas. Five solas. Okay, again, more Latin. You say, why is this Latin? Because that's the language that these guys spoke in, wrote in, and the educated use. And, and now kind of, well, I won't, anyway, we keep using it for whatever reason. It means alone. Okay, it means only. Okay, alone, only. The five solas. And this is Reformation theology in its broadest sense. The theology that came out of the Reformation, and here's why I want to emphasize it. It is not tied necessarily to any one present-day denomination as much as it is revealed and rooted in the Bible. So I'm going to give you these five solas, but I want you to understand uh, that this isn't owned by one denomination. You don't have to buy into a system to understand gospel doctrine. It's rooted and it's revealed in your Bible. And if we had time, and I've done this in the past, I'd take you to Romans 3, classic passage about the gospel. I'd take you to Ephesians 2, classic passage about the conversion of souls. And I would show you that in both of those key critical passages, these five solas are they're just revealed there and they jump out at you once you understand what they are. So let's look at them. The Reformation theology is Bible-based. Bible-based. In Latin, sola scriptura. Scripture alone. As our final authority. Not our only authority. 
We can use commentaries. We can use books. We need to listen to our pastors and gifted teachers. But Scripture alone is the deciding final factor. Secondly, Reformation theology is Christ-centered. Solus Christus in Latin, in English, in Christ alone. And these really follow a logical, a gospel logic. Because when you open the Bible and study it for what it is, God's word, you see Christ. You see the promise of Christ, and you see in the Old Testament in the fulfillment of Christ. And you find that it's not in what we do, but in what he has done. And that's Christ alone. And Reformation theology number three is gospel proclaiming. Gospel proclaiming, uh, which is sole fide, Latin, English, through faith alone. Because you never, until you fully understand who Christ is and what he has done for enslaved sinners, you, you, until you understand that, you will not understand that salvation is by faith alone and not through works. In other words, when someone says salvation is by Christ alone and my faith in what he has done, Christianity is spelled D-O-N. It's not spelled do, D-O. It's in what he's done. When you fully understand who he is and what he's done, then you understand salvation. I can't add to it. It's by faith alone. And then fourth... Reformation theology is life-changing, sola gratia, in English, by grace alone. What you realize is uh, without the grace of God, I can't understand what the Bible says. Without the grace of God, I can't see who Christ really is and what he's done for me. Without the grace of God, I lack the faith to put my trust in him. It's all God's enabling. And then fifthly, Reformation theology is God-glorifying. Do you see the logic of that? Soli Deo Gloria. Sometimes that's written shorthand, S-D-G, and it means for God's glory alone. Because after all, who else deserves the glory when it's his word that he reveals? How else can God, who else but God can get the glory when it's his son that he gave? Who else can get the glory when it's his good news that's proclaimed and all we do is receive it? We, can, we have nothing to boast of. We have nothing that we can do or must do to add to it. And how else can God be glorified? Because who else could change hearts from the inside out? Amen. Now, that's the gospel. In fact, the five solas, really, if you walk someone through those, you end up presenting the gospel. Okay, And that's why I have in your notes the five solas are the essentials of the true gospel of Jesus Christ and of saving faith. And that's why any church, any denomination can be a, a, a teach Reformation theology because all it is is teaching the gospel. Okay, According to the authority of Scripture alone, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. If you, a great definition of Reformation theology is also a great definition of the Reformation in general. And this quote by Carl Truman I like, A move to place God as he has revealed himself in Christ at the center of the church's life and thought. Wow. One last definition. Reforming. Reforming. What does it mean to be reforming? It's the rediscovery of biblical revelation that leads to repentance in our hearts, realignment of our lives, and restoration of sound doctrine and practice and living in a local church. Okay? And so here's the bottom line. This isn't just something that happened back 504 years ago. It's something that is ongoing and happened before that, but it dramatically, radically needed to happen in 1517. And I would put forth to you, we are living in an age where it's needing to be radically done again today. We are retreating from the Reformation, and instead we need to be reclaiming the reality of this.
God is always at work reforming his church according to his word, by his spirit, and for his glory. And I could take you through. Uh, I could take you through. A, a, a classic Reformation passage in the Bible is Revelation 1 through 3. Because in Revelation 1 through 3, the living Christ is calling his church in the first century. So how long does it take fallen men to get uh, men and women to get off track? Uh, not very long. Okay. Uh, but sometimes we want to get back to the first century where the church was really pure. No, they were messed up just like us. Broken and messed up. Needing a reformation. So what does Christ do in each one of those letters? He calls them back to repent. He says, let the churches hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Uh, you could go to the Reformation, which is a great example. But you can even go look at the Southern Baptist Convention, who went through a conservative resurgence where they called the denomination back to the Bible. But you can look at our own lives in our own church. So those are definitions. So Look to your neighbor and say, take a deep breath. It's okay. Uh, if you tuned out, tune back in. Okay, tune back in. Definitions are important. But here's the second reason. Not only does God use ordinary people like you and I to do extraordinary things, but number two, we still enjoy the spiritual benefits of the Reformation. All right? And I've listed for you 15 ways. And so... Honestly, think about that. Reflect on that this afternoon and reflect on that this week. Do you enjoy congregational singing? Thank, thank God for the Reformation. Uh, Martin Luther wrote one of the greatest hymns of Christianity, Mighty Fortress is Our God, in the midst of the Reformation. Are you glad you own your own copy of the Bible in your heart language? Thank God for the Reformation. Uh, here's one. Do you enjoy taking the Lord's Supper on a regular basis? Thank God for the Reformation. Do you realize, do you like taking both the bread and the, and the cup? Do you like both those? Well, b- before the Reformation, bread was only given once a year to God's people, and the wine was so holy, being viewed as the literal blood of Christ, that you as a mere church member could never partake. In fact, those elements and that element were so holy that only a priest could put it in. You couldn't even touch them. How'd you like, uh, Bruce and I go around and and put the elements in your mouth and and, and let you drink from a cup that we hold that you don't hold. And in fact, uh, Lutheran churches are still that way. Uh, Today, I went uh, to a Lutheran church up in Ohio, and I thought, well, this will be cool. You know, they're reformers and all that. And we get up, go take the Lord's Supper. Everybody had to stand up and go to the front. Well, I'm fine with that. And then all of a sudden, I see this, the, the, the pastor wanting to put this in my mouth. And I'm like, ooh, I made a mistake. I won't do this again. Uh, you know, and others can do it with a clear conscience. For me, I ain't doing that again. Uh, do you like being 100% sure of your salvation before you die? Thank God for the rever- Reformation. Um, Do you like, are you thankful for a worship service centered on the preaching of God's word rather than the dead rituals of men? Thank God for the Reformation. At the center of their churches before the Reformation was the the altar where the, the bread and the wine would be transformed by magical incantation into the literal blood and body of Christ. And after the Reformation... Pulpits became the center focus because it's the preaching of God's word, not the dead rituals of men. Here's one. Are you thankful that your pastors can marry and still be in good standing with God? I really don't care whether you are or not. I am, okay? Martin Luther, a a former priest, monk, marries a former nun and establishes a Christian home that really set the standard for the radical reforming of the family. Well, we could go on down through all of that, but here's the bottom line. If you answered yes to these questions, then you've been directly impacted by the Reformation, and we should give God all the glory. 
that what happened through men and women 504 years ago has still had a lasting effect in our church today. So here's the next question. Who gets the glory for all this? Who gets the glory? Is it Martin Luther? Is it the other reformers like John Calvin, Zwingli, Grable? You know, who gets the glory? These men and women that we're going to talk about? We're going to spend two weeks on Martin Luther. Does he get the glory? No, here's the third reason why we should remember the Reformation. God gets all the glory with, for what takes place in history because history is his story. Listen, study, get out of your mind, boring, dead history that you may have learned in school, secular facts and figures, and study church history and realize this is God's story. We taught the big story during COVID. God's big story is taking place still today. Why does God get all the glory? Well, one of the, the, the ultimate sola, sola de, soli deo gloria, God, to God be the glory alone. Because here's the reality, and this is really cool. None of the reformers would want us to glorify them more than God, much less idolize them. Listen, we don't study church history. We don't study the Bible, for that matter, to idolize men and women. Instead, they would want us to give God alone all the glory. And here's how we know this. Luther who obviously the denomination Lutherans is named after him, never intended to start a denomination named after himself. And we have his own words. Listen to what Luther said. I ask that my name be left silent and people not call themselves Lutheran, but rather Christians. Who is Luther? The doctrine is not mine. I have been crucified for no one. St. Paul in 1 Corinthians 3 would not suffer that the Christians should call themselves a Paul or a Peter, but Christian. And then in typical Luther language, how should I, a poor stinking bag of worms, become so that the children of Christ are named with my unholy name? Isn't that a great, and that's classic Luther. He was so earthy, he was so down to earth. Uh, He was an interesting guy. It should not be, dear friends. Let us extinguish all divisive names and be called Christians whose doctrine we have. The Pope's men rightly have a divisive name because they are not satisfied with the doctrine and name of Christ and want to be with the Pope, who is their master. I have not been and will not be a master. Along with the church, I have the one general teaching of Christ who alone is our master. And in case you're still in doubt of who deserves the glory, Martin Luther once was asked, how did the Reformation take place, of which you were the ultimate leader, face, and most associated with? And here's what Luther said. I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And then, while I slept, or drank Wittenberg beer with my co-laborers, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that never a prince or emperor did such damage to it. I did nothing. The word did it all. To God alone be the glory. And the famous French reformer, John Calvin, was so fearful of men following him instead of Christ, that he demanded that he be buried in an unmarked grave when he died. And to this day, no one knows where Calvin is buried. He would be appalled to know that his name is, uh, is used in a way to divide God's people. And to, to, it's, just, it's just tragic because these men are focusing on the Bible and on the solace. And so... Here's the idea. And, and besides that, listen, these guys were sinners just like us. And Luther was a big sinner. Luther was a, here's one quote. Luther was a big man and he made big mistakes along with all his fellow reformers. Let us not idolize these people, but learn from them. For they were simply doing in their age and generation what we seek to do in ours. Listen, the hero of the story is always God the Father 
to him be the glory alone and his son, Christ alone. And so in reality, the five solas were the fuel for the Reformation. They were the fuel for the Reformation fire that burned so bright. If you go through those five solas, that's how the Reformation took place. I'll give you this illustration of how to God be the glory kind of sums up the Reformation. Uh, About 100 years after the Reformation, Sebastian uh, Bach was... uh, uh, lived in Worms, and he lived in the shadow. In fact, uh, those of us that went to Germany and, and uh, did the Reformation tour, we saw his, his, uh, his or uh, in Eisenach, rather, uh, where his home is. Sebastian Bach grasped this idea, and when he would write his musical compositions, at the bottom of the music he composed, he would write SDG, To God Be the Glory Alone. But did you know that in many of his compositions and many of his letters, he would not only end them with SDG, but he would begin them with JJ, which in, was the Latin, uh, uh, Latin initials for Jesus' help. Jesus' help. So he would start a composition, Jesus' help. He would end the composition, to God be the glory alone. Hey, Ladies, men, work, whatever you're doing, parenting, recreation, every day we could start the day by saying, Jesus, help, because without you I can't do this. And at the end of the day, if anything worthy has been done, to you be the glory alone. That's making the Reformation practical, okay? Uh, Now, ultimately why God gets the glory too is, Only God can answer the two most important questions anyone can ask in any age. Ultimately, and we'll see this next week in the life of Martin Luther, ultimately, you can boil down the Reformation to a desire to answer these two questions. And here they are. What must I do to be saved from God's wrath and enjoy a right relationship with him? What must I do? Shorthand, what must I do to be saved? And when you're living in darkness, like we all have been or maybe still are, we don't know the answer to that question. And the second question is equally important. Who has the ultimate authority to answer that question? And that is what the Reformation was all about. You say, well, how did they come to answer that question? Come back next week, and in the life and the story of Martin Luther, you find the answer to those questions. But here's the fourth reason, the fourth and final reason we should remember the Reformation. It's for this reason. People still sit in darkness, needing the light of the gospel. Listen, darkness wasn't just then. Ignorance wasn't just then. Hopelessness wasn't just then. I hope as we go through this, you can think about when you sat in darkness and your foolish thoughts about your sin, about how good you were, your foolish thoughts of how you might work your way to God, or your hopelessness in knowing, I could never be good enough. I can never measure up. What must I do? Who will ever save me? These are the questions. And here's the reality. The answer to these two questions do determine your destiny. The How you answer those two questions will determine your destiny for all eternity. Answer those two questions wrong and you will bear your guilt into eternal condemnation. Answer those questions as God answers them and your guilt will be lifted And you will enjoy eternal life both now and in the age to come. Because here's the reality, and we're going to see this next week. Martin was a good monk. He was a good Catholic. He was a good religious leader. But being good is never good enough to earn your salvation. Martin Luther said this, after getting saved and looking back on his religious life, if ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery, it was I. The guy's just great. The guy's great. 
Listen, if the Pope in those days was going to assemble a spiritual softball team of all-star monks, Martin Luther would be the MVM, most valuable monk on the team. Not because the Pope knew who he was. The Pope didn't know who he was. No one knew who he was. But on October 31st, he nails these 95 points of debate because he was seeing the greed and the corruption and the extortion of the, of, the, of the Roman Catholic Church, what's become the Roman Catholic Church, and he didn't want to leave it. He wasn't being just a disgruntled church member. He was saying, look, he had a pastor's heart, and he saw people struggling. He said, we need to bring reform, and that's what happened. And so Luther chose October 31st to hammer hammer his 95 talking points to the church door because October 31st was All Saints Eve or All Hallows Eve Halloween, what we now know as Halloween. Well, I can't tell you the story. We'll save that for next week. But basically, October 31st was the eve before November 1st, which was All Saints Day. And all, you know, on All Saints Day, all around Europe, they would bring out these relics of dead saints, the really good people that the church had declared to be saints. You're not. They are. And they're so good that they have so many good works built up. They have a mutual fund of righteousness that they've stored up in heaven. And they've got more good works than they need and you have less good works than you need, so if you pay the church a little money, we'll get you a get-out-of-purgatory-sooner card. And by the way, the Pope's building a big, magnificent uh, basilica, St. Peter's Basilica, which is the Vatican today. That building was built off the bondage in the backs of people steeped in ignorance and unbelief because they didn't have an open Bible. And they didn't know the solas of the gospel. And so on the day before this big holiday, he puts that up. He basically blogs. He puts up a blog post that he knows everybody's going to see. But it's written in Latin. So he's not doing it to rile up the masses. He's trying to have a debate with the other scholars. But someone sees the significance of it, and they translate it into German, and they distribute it like tracts like Terry Unruh is doing, and like within four weeks, an unknown monk comes up on the Pope's radar and everything else changed. You want to hear more about that? Come back next week and we'll, we'll look at that. But let me end with this. Truly, 504 years ago was a Halloween that changed the world. The Reformation is worth remembering because God used it to bring light to darkness for His glory and the good of all people. And folks... That's something worth celebrating, not just once a year, but every day of our lives. Amen? That light still shines today. Listen to Luke 1, 78 through 79. This was prophesied when John the Baptist was born regarding Jesus Christ. Because of the tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise from on high will visit us, Jesus, to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Amen. 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 That's what the gospel and the reformation. So I end with this. Two things. One, if you are born again today, and I assume nothing, I never will, because that's a dangerous thing to do. But if you're born again today, you've already had a spiritual reformation. You've crossed over from darkness into light. Amen? But listen, we're surrounded by people every day at work who are living in darkness. And what happens in a postmodern society is they don't even know that it's darkness. They think the darkness is light. They think they've got, they, they, they probably, many of them think there isn't even a God. And if he is, who could know him? You and I have the light to shine in their darkness. But listen to this. Not only have you experienced a reformation, but remember this. 
We need an ongoing reformation. And so I'll end today with Ephesians 5, 8 through 12. Listen to these. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is disgraceful. Listen to me. It is disgraceful to even speak of the things which are done by them, not by us, by them in secret. I don't know about you, but I need a reformation, an ongoing life of repentance. And the second I think I don't, I'm dead in the water again. And you won't think you need one if you keep your Bibles closed and if you avoid and isolate from the people of God. I'm preaching to the choir. You came an hour early. I get that. I understand that. But here's the reality. When God, the gospel is proclaimed, open Bibles, open hearts, and open doors to reach the loss are the result. That's what I want for me. That's what I want for you. That's what we want for our church. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Uh, Church history is exciting when we understand it from your perspective. Lord, I pray we've all had a reformation of being born again. And I pray, Lord, we take a hard look with an open Bible and may your spirit shine the light where darkness is still a habit or a secret sin. Lord, we need you alone. And we thank you, Lord, for what you did back then. And I guess our prayer this morning is, Lord, do it again. Do it again. And let it begin with me. God be the glory. Great things he has done. Amen. Amen.